Alright folks, get out your casualty caps and your bounce sticks. We're talking old school gaming. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I am your host, Jay Arnold. In this episode, episode 31, we talk with Henry Hyde about old school gaming. The Veteran Wargamer is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible is the premier audiobook and audio entertainment site and app. You can try the Audible service for free and receive an audiobook you can enjoy forever. Don't like the service? Cancel at any time and the book is yours to keep. My book of the ep is The Face of Battle by John Keegan. This fascinating book covers the experience of battle from the perspective of the men fighting. He examines this perspective in three pivotal British battles, Agincourt, Waterloo, and the Somme. To experience your free trial and redeem your free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com tvwg. That's audibletrial.com slash tvwg. And I'm joined by Dean of the Hobby, Henry Hyde. <laughs> Dean of the Hobby. <laughs> well, that's an apt description, is it not? Well, thank you, Professor. Um, <laughs> hi, Jay. It's really good to be here again. Actually, um, I have to say, it seems like we're recording podcasts more frank, more frequently than Neil Shuck and I managed to record them, which is uh, quite an achievement, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be here, my friend. Well, I'm glad to glad to have you on. We're going to talk about old school gaming and what that means and maybe a couple of hints and tips and tricks about getting into this this particular aspect of the gaming hobby. But uh how have you been? Uh I uh, I'm actually just getting over uh, a cold that's been hanging around for a while, Jay, but other than that I'm fine. I'm just uh, stupidly busy. Uh, just before the show, we were saying that, you know, we're both self-employed. And so what happens is if you fall sick and have to take a few days off work, you then spend weeks catching up all the work you should have done because there's no one to hand it off to. Mm -hmm. So I've been I've been busy. I think that'd be fair to say, Jay, I've been busy, but I'm I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm I'm all right as well. Uh, took the family. Uh, yesterday to see the new Star Wars movie and no spoilers but it is an awful lot of fun wow I'm looking forward to seeing it we're seeing it next Tuesday so we've got a local cinema literally just down the road here which is very comfortable it's a, one of the less well known cinemas it's not like the Odeon or something like that where it's always packed out with noisy people crunching away on crisps and popcorn and chatting to each other and on their mobile phones no it's a much more civilized place you can even have a glass of wine if you want or, or a glass of beer while you're watching the movie yeah there's, very civilized there there are a few places in the u.s where you could do that um it's not it's not universal by any means uh when i went to germany the first time i we went and saw a couple of movies in the theater and i was highly impressed with being able to get a a nice a nice beer and then shortly after i got back uh from that trip there was a this is when i was at fort bragg there was a mm. theater that opened up that served beer and to add and to add to the experience it was uh what we in the u.s call a second run 
uh, theater where they okay. wouldn't show movies right when they came out. So once mm-hmm. they started coming off the main screens, uh, they'd go to these second run houses. And oh, okay. so you'd have to wait a month, month and a half for a movie to get there. But hey, once it did, the I want to say the afternoon matinee was only a dollar, and then you could spend two bucks and get a beer. And yeah, it wow. was uh, good value. Yeah, I mean it's that's how I was able to see uh, Braveheart three times in the theater. So. <laughs> oh my God, three times! Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? That uh, sometimes we complain that our hobby of wargaming can be expensive, but man, you try going to the cinema these days, and you're paying uh, what? At least uh, in the UK here, probably. 10, 12, 15 pounds a head, depending on which cinema you go to. Hmm. So going to see a, 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 a film, a movie in the UK for the family, man, this is an expensive outing. Yeah. You know, I can remember when I was a kid, uh, the local cinemas, you know, my my mother or father, when I was a little boy, would take me to see all sorts of things. Uh, you know, all the Disney, original Disney's, the Snow Whites and, and Bambies and what have you. Um, but now it's an expensive thing to do, and and the stuff they sell. If you if you get hungry or thirsty in the cinema, man, that's expensive too. Oh yeah, it was uh, for the four tickets. You know, me, Beth, the kids, uh, with a large popcorn and two large sodas. You know, because we share. Because we, I guess, some people think that's gross, but hey, we're family. Um, <laughs> 50 bucks or just short of 50 bucks like 46 oh God, and change yeah. or 40 no it was like 48 and change yeah so yeah it's 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 a uh, and that wasn't I think that was actually officially matinee hours if it had been regular hours really? it would have been closer to 60 yeah and, so, and then they wonder why not enough people are going to the cinemas what uh, you know people will stay people would rather buy a big screen tv and stay at home and watch it on demand or on dvd or whatever yeah or uh, or sit at, sit at home listening to podcasts hint hint or sit at home listening to two guys who are supposed to be talking about wargaming rambling on about <laughs> cinemas that's the way it goes right <laughs> our regular listeners will know that we do go off piste at regular intervals that's kind of part of the way it is i think well that's okay i've I, i've i think over this is what your third or f- this is your third it's my third or fourth time jay i'm beginning yeah. to feel like a regular mate that's all right that's all right you're in good company or, or at least <laughs> the other folks are in good company um so speaking of wargaming something i've been doing if you've if you've mm-hmm. been following on twitter and, f- mm-hmm. and facebook is i've been undergoing somewhat of a hobby streak myself Uh, it's hashtag hobby streak and then followed by either day and then a number or just simply a number indicating the number of days that a person has been doing something something with a hobby normally it's painting or modeling Mm. frankly I'm going to count recording a podcast as a a hobby thing today and while I'm editing because there's only so much time, but I'll, I'll count it. It's definitely active in the hobby. Uh, and it's been great. I've gotten quite a bit done. The primary thing I'm trying to get done is a squad of orc tank busters for my son for Christmas. I've got a week to go. Cool. And they're coming along. And I've been uh, building a, uh, 
a section for a modular section for a uh, space station project that I'm undertaking. Fantastic. And things are chugging right along. This time last week I had I had the base in a couple of walls that were just loose, hadn't been attached to the base yet for a detention center. And they'd been sitting in that state for about oh gosh. Oh, nine or ten months anyway. Yeah, I, I know what it's like. There's, there's stuff that's been sitting on my painting tray. Oh my god, I think it must be for two years now. Yeah. <laughs> At least. It, it's really interesting what you're saying about getting into a hobby habit. That's um, And just before the show, I mentioned that this is interesting because I've, I've not been on a hab- hobby habit just yet sadly but that will come but i have been trying to uh, get myself back into good habits good habits in general because um what i realized was because uh, you know most listeners i'm sure will realize i used to be a magazine editor i used to be editor of the monthly miniature war games with battle games magazine which is now just miniature war games um and I quit that job, oh gosh, it's over a year ago now, wasn't it? It was last September, I think it was September 2016. And then not long after that, my my mother passed away in November. And the combination of those two things, I have to say, really kind of sent me into free fall, in a sense. Uh, it really kind of knocked me right off course. I've... I've I realized recently that I've kind of been rudderless. Um, how many metaphors can I throw into a single <laughs> explanation? Yeah, let's say that my, my ship lost its rudder, and I, I realized that I wasn't, haven't, or hadn't been fully in control of the course my life has taken since then. And one of the things that I, I realized recently, well, a lot of that is to do with the fact that when I was running the magazine I obviously I had a regular monthly schedule that I knew I'd look at the calendar or look in my diary and I know okay it's that point in the month therefore I should be doing this or it was you know this other thing was going on and um, so I you know at this point I need to be doing something else and Mm. um I, whilst I was doing it, it's almost like I wasn't really conscious of it. Um, you know, it's just one of those things you sort of take for granted in your working life that you, you oh, yes, you know, well, I, I do this and then I automatically do that. Um, and that's just the way your kind of schedule goes. Yeah. And so when that's taken away from you... Um, it all kind of goes a bit squiffy. <laughs> um, and I re- just recently thought, well, I need to do something about this because I've, you know, I, 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 I've, I've been trying to rebuild my graphic design business. Uh, but the work comes as and when. It's not a regular thing, unlike the magazine where, you know, gosh, I've got to produce whatever it was in the end, 72 pages a month you know, uh, deal with the, uh, putting the advertising in, collate all these articles, find illustrations and photographs for them and so on and so on. When I've been doing a lot of, um, book jacket design in the last year, which is really nice. You know, I'm, I'm kind of enjoying it, but it's not predictable. 
uh, the work isn't predictable right. and also I'm dealing with self-employed authors who often they certainly aren't predictable <laughs> you know so the work yeah. comes in and you oh, work 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 get it done bash back to them as soon as possible and then there's a complete silence for several days and you're thinking well what's happened have they died do they like it don't they like it is it too soon for me to chase them up would it seem rude if I chase them up but they're just taking their own sweet time you know they're working to their own schedules and fitting in you know that writing their book and approving the cover design when it suits them and I've so it's, it, that set me thinking quite a lot also in the last year uh, on the helpful side I, I kind of stumbled across or, or shall I say rediscovered a couple of people I'd heard mentioned before there's a guy called James Clear who is uh, really good on habit forming good habit forming and there's another guy I discovered him more recently called Derek Derpka uh, and I'll spell that for people because he's worth looking up he, he's on YouTube as well uh, and his surname is D-O-E P-K-E-R Derek Dupka. now uh, what these both these guys uh, focus on is what you might call process I mean a, a lot of people who are used to kind of business gurus or life gurus that kind of thing you're used to hearing people say yeah you've got to set goals you've got to make sure that you set goals you've got to say right I'm going to be a millionaire and you've got to visualize that and you've got to work towards or in our hobby sense you might say yeah well I want to visualize uh, that I have got two vast Napoleon Napoleonic armies I've got the entire Russian army and the entire French army for the war of 18 uh, you know 1812 in Russia and <coughs> that's going to need x number of thousands of figures right now mm -hmm. the the problem with that is it's very easy actually to set yourself up to fail uh, you, because the whole thing can become overwhelming and you can get really miserable about the fact that oh my god you know I need to collect 30,000 French figures for this and I've only done 200 right oh my yeah. god this is never gonna this is never gonna happen what these guys point out is that that's wrong what you need to do is basically what you're doing you focus on the process your goal if you like is simply to carry out the process every day so it's a bit like um you know you could set your your the task let's in a different sphere let's say i want to have the whitest teeth on the planet right <laughs> in just taking something really stupid now um therefore you might look in the mirror in the morning you know after brushing your teeth and think oh god you know well they still look the same sort of funny gray yellow color that they did yesterday <laughs> but actually on a kind of microscopic level they are slightly whiter you just don't notice it so if you carry on doing your t toothbrushing routine every day for 10 years man your teeth will look a lot whiter okay uh, you know and go and visit the dentist regularly and that kind of stuff and the hygienist so what's important is the process and actually eventually the process will get you there it's like some people you know my book is not not a bragging thing but people know i wrote a very big book you know the wargaming companion that came yeah. out in 2013 now and it was 520 pages long and i've had people say oh my god how on earth did you i can't imagine writing a book that big 
mate i'll tell you how i did it i did it one page at a time yeah i did it one page at a time one paragraph at a time one sentence at a time it's simply you you know if i like with the book i'm writing at the moment about wargaming campaigns which is it's getting quite big it's over a hundred thousand words if i'd sat down and thought about oh yes i want to write a hundred thousand words and an average page has got what three four hundred words on it you'd give up you'd just give up you just have to say i'm just gonna sit down put my put my bum in the chair and do it just for today one page and it's the same with the hobby habit it's like yeah just sit down it doesn't matter if you've got five minutes ten minutes half an hour an hour however long you you've got but make it regular yeah and this is why you're doing so well with your hobby habit because that's what you've grasped it's like you know i'm just gonna grab however much time it is on a day uh, that that I know I can do because this is the other thing. It's like um, you know, if you want to get really fit, I mean, you've been in the army, mate, so you know about this kind of thing. You you, you want to get fit, and you say, yeah, I'm going to do a hundred press ups a day, and in fact, you can only manage ten. the The danger is if you, if you've set your the goal of I'm going to do a hundred press ups a day, you feel like you've failed. Oh, I, I wanted to do 100, but I've only done 10. What you have to do is sw- turn that around and say, I managed to do 10. Doing 10 press-ups, actually, that's a major victory. If I managed to do any more than 10, wow, that's fantastic. But that's not what I'm aiming for. I'm going to aim to do 10. If I manage to do 11, wow, you know, I, I'm going to go and buy myself a, a chalk ice or something. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's I, I, a lot of the psychology. It's interesting, isn't it? Our hobby, which is essentially just playing with toy soldiers, but the playing with toy soldiers bit is kind of uh, it, it, that's not something that necessarily happens immediately, unless you you're quite happy no. to play with unpainted miniatures, which is a different thing. But if you're going, oh, I want to play with nicely painted miniatures on nice looking terrain then there's a process you need to go through before you reach that point. And uh, I know this is one of the things I think why so, you know, miniatures wargaming has a problem attracting newcomers, often because they see that as, oh my God, that's an impossible goal. How do I go from this box of miniatures that I've got to, you know, glue together, how do I go from that to something I see on, on at a war game show like Historicon or Salute you know, the, oh my god that's inc- it looks like a model railway layout those troops are beautifully painted and it's very easy for people and a lot do sadly, just to give up at that point and I think that what, uh, there's not enough of us who point out to newcomers that yeah you can get there but it is it's just a process you just have to be patient with the process and patient with yourself you know i because i know that i'm a very uh i I have been a very goal driven individual you know project driven individual that you know god i'm going to sit down and i'm going to you know work myself half to death but at the end of the month there's a magazine out there and people are reading that magazine right now right 
that has been a, I realize a huge motivator for me I'm, I'm you know that's the kind of thing that gives me a huge amount of satisfaction that you know god I work really hard work myself nearly you know to the, the white of my bones but at the end of it look at that satisfaction and then you start all over again but you can't absolutely you can't necessarily maintain that you know this is what, certainly as you get older I'm realizing because there's factors mitigate against it that you know as you get older you haven't got as much energy as you did when you were 30 or you know <laughs> even 40 so it's a kind of a philosophical shift that I'm going through at the moment that actually I'm just going to enjoy the process you know and this is what I'm doing with my health at the moment I'm just I, I, mm-hmm. I'm getting into the habit of every morning I get up there's I I it's going to sound like woo-woo stuff to a lot of our listeners I know I've started getting into what's called gratitude okay because I know that I was mm-hmm. you might need to beat this out but I was turning into a miserable old bastard <laughs> right uh, because I was getting right. angry about so many things and it's all wrapped up obviously with grief at losing my mother and the dealing with her estate and probate after that and you know it's not a pleasant process for anyone to have to go to and on top of you know not having the regular work I was getting pretty grumpy and I just you know fortunately I thought to myself you know this is I've got to do something about this this is no way to go through life just getting angry and grumpy oh and let's not mention Brexit and other things politically going on in the world at the moment right you know there's there's all sorts of things that would i think making quite a lot of people in the western world shall we say a little bit testy <laughs> at the moment right so i just thought well you know I've, I've got to do something about this so i've started doing gratitude so every morning as when i wake up the first thing i do is right what are three things that i'm grateful for when you reach my age the first thing is hey i'm still alive <laughs> Yeah, I woke up. I woke up, right? That's number one. <laughs> and then a couple of other things. And it might seem really silly that it's only a couple of things. Oh, shouldn't you be making a list of 10 or 20 things? No, the whole point is I, I, I'll i think of three things. And then if something else pops into my head, like, oh, my God, it's an amazingly sunny day. Or, you know, what's that amazing piece of music that I remember from last night? That's an extra. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing I now do every morning is I exercise. Now, this is something that I think a lot of war gamers, if my, yeah. in my, you know, Ken, they, that they should perhaps think about. And it's again, how um, forming a habit in a way that means you haven't got to make a decision, right? One of the big problems that people have is say, oh, yes, they take out a gym membership. It's, I don't know. a year, whatever. So it's an expensive gym membership, and they're really keen on it for the first few weeks, and then something happens, oh, I can't make it tonight, I've got to work late, oh, God, the kids need this, that. And then before you know it, you've missed one session, you missed two sessions, and then it becomes, oh, I can't be bothered anymore. Okay, So you've just spent $300, basically you've just wasted $300. And one of the problems with that is that you've had to make the decision and the decision seems like a big thing to I'm going to put on my gym stuff and go to the gym and often the gym is over the other side of town oh you might get stuck in traffic and oh god am I, am I going to get there in time the gym closes in half an hour all that kind of stuff there's too many factors mitigating against 
your possibility of achieving this thing of I'm going to the gym far better as I'm discovering just first thing in the morning so it takes me like 30 seconds to do the gratitude thing and then immediately I do exercises at home that I know I can do at home even in the bedroom while Anne's still asleep right or, or you know I'll just go in the lounge or whatever we haven't got much in, British houses are small and we live in an apartment mm-hmm. which is small we don't have a lot of space I haven't got like a massive multi-gym set up with weights machines and all the rest of it I've got a few free weights and my own body weight which is which is heavy enough I can tell you <laughs> I don't need barbells <laughs> mate so I, st- I do probably about five minutes of Tai Chi right mm, five okay. to ten minutes of tai chi depending on how i'm feeling because i used to do a lot of tai chi i was nearly a tai chi instructor most people don't know that about me okay i a few probably mm, breaking news breaking news breaking news probably henry a, hyde uh, yeah it's true previously uh tai chi, almost a tai chi instructor film at 11 yeah it's true about uh probably about uh 10 oh god the, the time has flown is it 10 to 15 years ago i've lost track of exactly when it was i was did a, a regular Tai Chi, like at least two or three sessions a week with a personal Tai Chi tutor, one-on-one, not in a group. And I made rapid progress and it reached the point where he said, Henry, you know, you should consider actually teaching yourself because I'm reaching the point where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, we're gonna, I'm gonna have to start sending you to other people to learn advanced techniques. And I was like, wow. And then stuff happened. I think it must have mm-hmm. been round about the time I started Battle Games, which then took my life over. And yeah. the guy who was teaching me, he was uh, did a lot to do with uh, you know web technology. So he was always travelling away to all sorts of places around the world. And so we just we couldn't meet up anymore. It was a real shame. Uh, but and but I've never I I have a good memory, a good body memory, if you like, and I've never forgotten what I was taught. So it's been kind of nice, actually, just kind of oh yes, oh yeah, you know, when um, anyone who does Japanese martial martial arts is familiar with the term a kata or a kata, which is where you have a series of movements that look like a, a mm-hmm. dance when they're all kind of joined together. And and Chinese martial arts are exactly the same. Tai Chi, Bagua and others, Kung Fu. When you're learning, you learn this series of connected movements which actually when you break them down and analyze them is you fending off multiple attackers and so on okay but in tai chi it's done so slowly that people don't realize that they look at that and think oh that's kind of nice slow dance actually if you speed it up mate it's deadly Uh, but anyway uh, so i do some tai chi then i do 20 push-ups and i do about 20 other exercises so in total maybe 15 minutes let's say okay now that gets my pulse going works up a bit of a sweat and the most important thing is as i'm saying here it gets it i feel satisfied having done it and it's i haven't had to make the decision it's literally i fall out of bed and i just start doing it there's no intervening time that means that oh i don't feel like it today it's just automatic I get up and I do it, right? And this yeah. is, you know, when people are thinking about, oh, God, how am I going to get back into a painting habit or a hobby habit? 
think about that process that what what can you do to remove the any obstacles any psychological obstacles between you thinking about doing it and actually doing it now um there's a a friend of mine simon tonkis who's a goat major on twitter lovely guy hi simon if you're listening uh and i know that when it comes to hobby habits man he's amazing now he says oh yeah he says self-effacingly on his twitter profile that he's glacially slow but that doesn't matter because (laughs) what it is with someone like simon is it's the consistency and i can't remember whether it's before he goes to work or after he gets home from work but just as an automatic thing he sits down and does what is it half an hour or so of painting or modeling or whatever now over the course of a week over the course of a month let alone over the course of a year that really adds up you know right and this is you know once i once i feel like i'm properly established in these other good habits i'm also doing meditation by the way uh, people mm-hmm. are going to think i'm i'm turning into a hippie <laughs> <laughs> It's not true. I'm just being more open-minded about some of these things. And and, sure. and like anything, once you actually try something, you actually do the research and look into it and find a proper kind of teaching method, you realize, oh, actually, it's not at all hippie. It's actually really interesting. Right. And more to the point, God, it's really beneficial. So there's an app, folks. There's an app called Calm, C-A-L-M, Calm, which uh, you can get on your iPhone or Android or whatever. And the first seven days program is free. And it's at no point in the in the seven days one. You, you know, you're not being expected to sit there like Buddha for 10 hours. It's 10 minutes, right? right? 10 minutes. Now, anyone who says they can't find 10 minutes in their, in their day, even over their lunch break or something, to just close their eyes, listen to something calming, and, you know, try this out they're kidding themselves you know it just give it a go that's all i'd say to people if you're feeling stressed or depressed or you've you've got anxiety anything of that kind i've got to tell you it's like wow that's really interesting um a lot of it has to do with focusing on your breath so you just cut out all the other noise in your life all the other voices in your head and just basically focus on your breathing for 10 minutes it's remarkable i can tell you um yeah so that's interesting um and the other thing i'm i'm desperately trying you know and is still i'm working on is the regular writing habit because um, you know, having said, yeah, I've I've, I've written a hundred thousand words of this next book, but man, it's taken me years. <laughs> and one of the things I've struggled with is being disciplined about saying to people, right, no, I am not going to accept any interruptions whilst I'm doing this. Okay, this is what I yeah. do for a living my writing is what I want to be doing full time for my living so if someone was a lawyer you wouldn't just barge into their office while they're having a meeting with a client or sorting out someone's divorce would you right uh, yeah. you'd, you'd get a mouthful and probably a bill <laughs> if it's a lawyer in my case therefore if I say to you I am spending the next hour two hours whatever it is writing that is my time do not interrupt right. me and the trouble is 
I'd like to think I'm a reasonably nice guy and I like helping people. And the trouble is, if something crops up, oh, yeah, okay, oh, look, oh, look, I'll just do that for them. It'll only take me five minutes, okay? But five minutes becomes 10 minutes, becomes 15 minutes. That's life. Um, so that's something I'm working on. And the hobby habit is definitely, because how, how many times have we talked about this, Jay? I have got... Mm, mm, probably many thousands of unpainted little miniatures. Oh, yeah. Right? And the trouble is, going back to what I said earlier, I can look at all that and just feel complete overwhelm. Oh, my God, there's no point even starting because I'm never going to get them all finished. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Whereas, in fact, the sensible thing, like I'll say, I'll call it the, the goat major method is, yeah, well, what you do is you just paint those five and then you paint another five. And then you paint another. And before you know it, you know what? Wow, that's a battalion. And before you know it, yeah. that's a brigade. And then it's a division. And then it's an army corps. And mate, for most war gamers, you know, you, you probably wouldn't even collect an, an army corps per side, would you? Um, no. Whereas when I look at uh, even some of the stuff I've done on Twitter, like when I painted my beautiful GHQ uh, early World War Two Germans. That was mm -hmm. that was so classically me, Jay. That was that was a binge. That was oh, I haven't done any painting in ages. I know what I'll right. do. I'll take two weeks over Christmas and just blast my way through this lot. And I did it. And part of me thinks, wow, how did I do that? But that was so typically me because I treated it as this is a project. And man, I right. do not fail at projects. I'm just gonna, everything else. I hardly eat. I won't sleep, but I'll get that project done. <laughs> right. And then at the end of it, yeah, I've got these, I've got these beautiful GHQ German miniatures painted, uh, and I'm completely shattered at the end of it. And then the irony was that, as I think we've mentioned on the show before, my friend Guy turned around and said, oh, "No, I can't be asked to paint anything at this scale. So you can, <laughs> you can have my French. Can we do it all in twenty mil, please?" <laughs> So then again, I blatted my... W so, right, grr, angry, angry. Right, okay, let's start again. <laughs> start again. Reset the clock. And off I go and blat my way through a load of early war miniatures, 20 mil Germans and, and plastic soldier company Panzer 38Ts and stuff. Got a load of those done. And then my mate guy's kind of like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I like the rules. Can you see a pattern emerging here? <laughs> Yeah, you need to game with somebody else. Uh, yeah, there is that. <laughs> there is that. What can I say? Now that's well. There, there's certainly something to that. I, I've always, I, I'm a terrible procrastinator, and that's what the hobby habit or hobby streak helps with. Ooh. If you just get it in your head, hey, you know, last night was a perfect example. We we went to the movie, we. Uh, we went and saw Star Wars. It's it's a lot of fun, by the way. Mm -hmm. The new Star Wars movie. Um, and we got home. It was about nine o'clock. So okay, we finish. You know, we get in. We, you know, put the stuff away because we did just a touch. You know, just a touch of shopping as well. We need to get rolling and uh, get the kids down. You know, get the kids in bed yep. and and all that. And the wife heads to the bedroom also and. And I think I gotta keep this hobby streak going. I'm just, I'm just gonna, I've got one exterior wall to finish for this detention center I'm working on for the space station. I'm, I'm just gonna cut the wall to to fit. Yep. That that's all I'm gonna do. 
So I come downstairs. I I get the laptop going. I've got the the Lardy's Oddcast going. Oh yeah, right. Listen to that. So I cut it to I cut it to length and okay, that fits pretty good. Well, I've already got the I've already got the texture, the wall textures printed. I might as well go ahead and just cut those out. I'm just gonna cut the paper out. That's all I'm gonna do. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna cut the paper out and make sure I've got enough for both sides, and that'll be it. Well, I've got to cut out. I might as well go ahead and glue it down. <laughs> but that's all I'm going to do. That's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to glue it down, and then that'll be it, and I can go to bed because i got to get up early to record with Henry. That'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, I might as well cut the doorway out. Okay, okay. <laughs> Let's. I'm just going to cut the doorway out, and that's going to be it. And, uh, well, it'll only take a minute to glue this thing in place. <laughs> and then the next thing I know, I, I've... All I actually I originally intended on just coming down and printing some printing some more textures out for future future walls I'm gonna be putting into this thing. Oh but right. Lo and behold, I've got a it's a functional piece of terrain now. It's not done, but it's functional. It's got four exterior walls and they're decorated and it's structurally sound and That's fantastic. Yeah. It, what, what you were describing there, I mean, it made me laugh because God, that sounds like the process I go through when I do when I'm doing graphic design, Jay. When I'm doing a book, say a book jacket for someone, and I'm working in Photoshop, and there's always, I mean, anyone who's used Photoshop knows there's there's hundreds of potential filters and different blending methods mm-hmm. you can use, and it's a it's a classic piece of software where the temptation is always to tinker, you know. So you can think, all right, that's done. I've done that. Oh, hang on a minute. What if I just changed that typeface? Oh, what if I, I changed or made that typeface embossed? What if I gave it a glow? What if, oh, what if, how about if I just shifted that green a bit more light, a bit? It's, it's so easy to just kind of end up going down the rabbit hole, isn't it? And something that <laughs> could legitimately, look, the first one's fine. It took you 10 minutes. Stop. Okay, that's fine. The, yeah. the client's going to be happy with that. But it's like, and then you end up spending like a couple of hours tinkering and you might still come back to the opinion that nah the first one was the best one (laughs) (laughs) so that's a classic thing it's like well i i am i am a firm believer that perfect is the enemy of good enough yes yeah yeah and i also i also firmly believe that the price of perfection is prohibitive yes and i picked that up from uh he calls himself Uncle Adam. I think his real name is Adam Glasser. I think or something. Oh, Adam like Glazer. That. that. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's uh, Tabletop Minions is his YouTube channel. Right. And he did a video about this little sign that his father-in-law had in his house that said the the price of perfection is prohibitive. Yeah. And I'm not. I'm definitely a fan of good enough when it comes to hobbying. Yeah. And you know, that's that's just a matter of, you know, personal personal preference. But yeah. you know, I, I think there's a lot of people out there who, you know, they see the the pictures in the glossy magazines, whether it's White Dwarf or mm. uh War Games Illustrated or any of the others and see these beautifully painted figures and think, man, I can never do that. Now and but that's not the point. The point is, you know, that that might be something to aspire to, but at the same time, as I've said in, I don't know if I've ever said it on the podcast, but every masterpiece is preceded by a thousand pieces of shit. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's just that the outside gotta, world doesn't see the shit. Right, exactly, and you just got to keep 
you got to keep trucking with it. Yep. And find a result that is acceptable to you. Yep. And if anyone else says that, oh, it's, uh, you you missed a spot here, or that's the wrong facing color, mm-hmm. or anything like that, you know, it's, you know, who are you trying to please with the hobby? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this... it, it's your hobby. I think this is actually where ding, we can introduce the concept of old school. <laughs> because You mean the topic we were ostensibly getting together to right. talk about? Now, that might seem like a really clunky introduction, <laughs> going from that to that. But one of the, you know, if we probably need to define old school very shortly right. but one of the, one of the things that was attractive i think to a lot of people when the old school wargaming movement started back in the, oh my god uh early 2000s kind of well i started battle games because of it in 2005 so it must have been about 2003 2004 that i mm-hmm. first got invited to join the old school wargaming yahoo group which was really small at the time. I think there were about, oh my God, 30 people on it, something like that, 30 or 40 people. And then it mushroomed, as these things do, um, <coughs> to, I don't know, at the point where I left it, I think it must have had close to 2,000 people on it. But anyway, a lot of people were, and I think they were often older gamers. Uh, by which I'd say probably, you know, mostly my generation. I'm 56 now. Um, so back then we were in our <laughs> 40s, um, probably. 40s, you know, to 40s to early 50s. Uh, mm-hmm. Where we had grown up in an environment in the hobby where... Um, there wasn't such an emphasis on your miniatures being beautifully painted. Um, that the rules were simpler, the concepts were simpler. Some people would also say there was a a different f- philosophy, you know, in gaming at the time, which was much more kind of friendly, gentlemanly. It's about the game. It's not about the winning. Da 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 da. Now. Let me say from the word go, because a lot of people, and I've said this before on your show and on Neil's show, a lot of people associate me, oh, Henry, he's old school wargaming, it's all old fashioned stuff. Uh, he's, you know, he's stuck back in the 1960s. Mate, it is not true, because I'm no fool and I know and recognize that actually this rose tinted vision of what it was like back in the 60s, 70s, you know, early 80s, whatever is complete tosh uh you know mm-hmm. there were that just if you go back in the early war games journals and read the arguments that don featherstone was having with oh i'm just about everyone <laughs> but particularly with people like phil barker for example there mm-hmm. was some bitter acrimony back in the early days of the hobby absolutely you know they might have been wearing jackets and ties but mate they hated each other <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were I mean not all of them obviously and there were there were some exceptions people like Charles Grant for example I still look back at his work back in the 60s and 70s and think he was a gentleman he was a true 
excuse me, a true gentleman who was, um, you know, I still see him as a bit of a kindly old soul, but even he was capable of having long, rambling arguments month after month after month in the letters pages of the magazines about, for example, what is exactly a, a, an ancient Thracian rumpfia? You know, what the, the yeah. weapon with a curved blade and a long handle kind of thing. And, and God, him and Phil Barker and others were just... Particularly, I think, people who were me early members of the Society of Ancients. Uh, because many of them actually did have academic backgrounds. So they behaved like academics. And what academics tend to do, in my experience, is they argue a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right? They argue a lot. But anyway, the, uh, the, the kind of old school movement, uh, in the rose-tinted uh, glasses version, had this kind of <coughs> um, aura of they were lovely games, often horse and musket era or ancient period games, uh, and they it, it was all about you know the game's the thing, winning is secondary. We're here; it's a very social thing. We're all nice to one another. To a certain extent, I think one of the things that is true about if you like the genuine old school era is early on in the hobby there just weren't that many war gamers so people would travel extraordinary distances just to get a game right you know so mm -hmm. charles grant would happily travel to edinburgh or whatever or don featherstone would get on a plane and come over go over to america um where of course there was there was also a nascent wargaming scene i'm i have a shelf next to me jay which people can't see because we're not on video but i'm i'm reaching over and plucking a book off my shelf called how to play war games in miniature by joseph morshauser okay and this book mm -hmm. was published in america in new york in 1962 so you know, oh, wow. A lot of British gamers think that oh, it's a you know wargaming was a very British thing. Eh, actually, we shouldn't be quite so smug. There was a lot going on in America as well. The difference in the states then, the same as it is now, is of course that the distances involved are vast. So oh, yeah. in the UK, you know, we people would consider themselves heroic of jumping in the car. And travelling, you know, from Southampton as Don Featherstone did, over to Dover or up to Birmingham or somewhere like that. Of course, in your country, Jay, you you need to add a couple of thousand miles to that potentially, right? Um, right. But I said, you know, it is true that back in the days before we had motorways in this country, because motorways didn't, you know, the M1 opened in what was it, 1960 something. So before motorways distances seemed relatively longer cars were less powerful generally and you know you'd you'd end up having to take a lot of twiddly country lanes and things to get where you were going but the, the it had more i think of a sense of community um and the magazines the early magazines had something to do with that you know had war games digest and uh, war games journal don featherstone's early magazines these were things that were literally typed on a typewriter and then photocopied or ronio copied and sent out to people stapled mm -hmm. up and there was this kind of shared excitement of discovery obviously much more limited availability of miniatures uh you had to make almost all your own terrain 
Um, mm-hmm. And it was, and it wasn't until, or was it the first Airfix box figures came out? It's in my book, isn't it? Uh, the Guards Band, 1959, and then it was, you know, the early 1960s onwards. Suddenly, Airfix was producing its little HOO, you know, 172 scale. Uh, plastic miniatures where for the you know the price of a couple of shillings you'd be getting what 40 to 50 miniatures and right. that did a lot to help mushroom the hobby plus of course you you could suddenly buy all these plastic kits for aircraft and tanks and all that kind of stuff so yeah Come, to, to say nothing about the availability of banana oil and not to mention the availability of banana oil and plasticine uh we managed to get that in, Jay. Well, I wasn't sure you were going to get to us, so I went ahead and prodded you. <laughs> in amongst all my other drivel. But anyway, the thing is, uh, so the, the old school, to me, uh, you know, if I'm defining it, means that kind of wargaming that, you know, was birthed in the... the actually the late 1950s early 1960s and then saw the growth of the hobby through the 1960s probably up to a, let's say 1980 or thereabouts you know mid more mid 70s uh, there's some argument you know as these things always do you know you had the old school wargaming group and then there's people come along a bit longer and they say oh, well oh to me old school wargaming is people like bruce quarry Right and and his Napoleon's campaigns in miniatures or the Airfix guide to Napoleonic gaming, well those actually mm-hmm. were kind of early to mid 1970s. Now those of us who are really old school say no 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 that's middle school. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know it's like someone saying that uh, you know um, the WRG. Um, war games rules which were ubiquitous throughout the kind of 1960s 70s you know but mm-hmm. someone's saying oh yes well i think wrg seventh edition is old school we're going no what no it isn't that's the seventh edition man i was there for edition number one two three you know back in the you know it's it's the exact same argument or exact same discussion on the old hammer groups yeah and someone says, well, what's Old Hammer? And, you know, someone will invariably say, you know, it's it's Fantasy Battle up to 3rd Edition and Rogue Trader. Yep. And that's it. And someone yep. will say, no, you got to include this and that and the other. And I've boiled it down to Old Hammer is the version of Warhammer you were playing in high school. Yes. And I suspect old school gaming is along the same lines. Because yeah. I'm sure there's people out there who who think that Flames of War first edition is old school. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You know, I there's there's I think you're right um because obviously also to those guys. I mean, I'm I'm looking at my shelf here, Jay, and I've got people in front of me like uh Brigadier Peter Young, Colonel James Lawford and their book Charge. Charles Grant, The War Game and The Ancient War Game and various other things. Uh, Don Featherstone, uh, uh, Battles with Model Soldiers, War Games Campaigns, Advanced War Games, etc., etc. You know, these mm-hmm. are the people who, to me, uh, are the old school stable. Terry Wise, An Introduction to Battle Gaming by Terry Wise, and so on. Uh, Battle Practical War Gaming, World War II Gaming by Charles Grant. All these, these are the books that I think now that's old school. Charlie Wisencraft, Practical War Game. Now these, because these are all books that were written 
uh, roundabout that were the late 1960s up to maybe 1972, something like that. Because, well, and I've, I've mentioned this before, that's when I discovered wargaming. You know, like the duckling imprinting on the first thing it sees. These were right, the first right. things I saw in my local library. You know, wow! So I've been playing with playing toy soldiers with toy forts and rolling marbles and stuff up to that point. You know, and then <clears throat> you know, nineteen seventy seventy one, I suddenly discovered this section of books in the library when I was so I would have been nine, ten years old something like that and oh my god what there's rules for this stuff oh my god mm -hmm. and of course then because of the collect the, the people who wrote these books had collections of model soldiers that they built up over the preceding what decade you know uh, so they'd started collecting model soldiers in you know the late 50s early 1960s and onwards so charles grant and his wonderful you know the spencer smith miniatures that people say oh god henry's banging on about spencer smith miniatures again but the thing is when charles grant discovered spencer smith miniatures sculpted by holger erickson by the way who also had his own range that's still produced by um tradition of london beautiful exquisite sculpts of 18th century Swedish soldiers, um, those were cutting edge at the time. You know, right. there's a, and Brigadier Peter Young, and in his book Charge, actually, when you look at the figures in there, those figures are, for, are from the shop which is, still exists, I believe, Tradition of London, Stadden figures, uh, Edward Seuron figures. Now, these are were created by people who had the skills of jewellers and still today they stand up to scrutiny as being amongst the the most beautiful sculpts of you know of miniatures that have mm -hmm. ever been made you know Perry what, Twin what was that company? Uh, well if you go to, there's uh, Surin Edward Surin was a sculptor S-U-R-E-N and the company is Tradition of London and they used to produce a regular magazine as well, Tradition of London. Um, now, if you get the copy of Charge, the hardback copy of Charge, and look, I'm holding it one here, in colour, there are these beautiful miniatures that have been painted with oil paints at the time, don't forget. This was even before mm -hmm. enamels had really taken off. To the most exquisite artistic standards. Now... And, and and charge is a book. I mean, this is produced by a brigadier and a colonel. These people had substantial incomes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. They they didn't buy tat. They didn't buy the cheapest thing. They bought the best. And those figures still stand up as being amongst the best mm -hmm. sculpts ever made. <clears throat> beautifully animated, beautifully proportioned. I mean, a lot of modern figures, and this would be a discussion for another time, or maybe we have already talked about it. A lot of modern figures have a kind of heroic proportion where they're really quite chunky, yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, now, some people say, oh, yeah, well, they're really nice and easy to paint. Mm, if you say so, but it's a matter of personal taste. Um, it's also to do with the casting and moulding process and that kind of stuff. But I right. actually, I still do, because... I imprinted on. I still love the more slender kind of 1960s 
figure style. Uh, the early S-Range minifigs, for example, when they first came out, and they're now collector's items, um, they were much more slender. Some people would say spindly. But, you know, it was the style of the time. There's a particular look. And I think that's the other thing, Jay. When right. I think of old school, old school games have a particular look about them. There's something about yeah. the style of the sculpting. Um, obviously, back in the early days, because people had to make their own terrain, then you're also talking about terrain that has a particular look about it, because a lot of it was homemade. You know, a simple green board. Um, you tended not to have miniatures mounted on terrained bases. Or, you know, you didn't you didn't have people with endlessly putting on little tufts of grass and a little clump of poppies or <laughs> what a bit of heather or whatever, because that, that kind of stuff wasn't available. Right. And it wasn't until the uh, the kind of mid 1970s where uh, and here's a name I think one the man who was largely responsible of, of the transition from if you like old school to middle school visually was Peter Gilder okay mm -hmm. and Peter Gilder ran the first war games holiday center up on the wilds of the Yorkshire Moors <laughs> near Scarborough uh, and, and I say that advisor because I, I went there in 1984 uh, and played a huge Salamanca game. I played the role of Marmont, the French commander, and won! Yay! Um, <laughs> but I did. I was so chuffed about it. But anyway, um, he, that, that place, it was basically in a big shed on the middle of the Yorkshire Moors, and man, it was freezing cold. I mean, he had paraffin heaters in there, right? So you had these huge tables and thousands of beautifully painted miniatures and uh but it was so cold it, i went there in february i think it was oh my god you know there was there was frost on the door handle when you went there um mm -hmm. people were wearing mittens whilst they were playing the game you know fingerless mittens <laughs> <laughs> that's how cold it was but the thing is people wanted to go there because his Layouts had started appearing in the war games magazines at the time. So military modelling, battle for war gamers in particular. Uh, you know, and then the, when the early, uh, well, war games illustrated when that first came out in the early eighties, you know, um, it, the the covers always, you know, loads of times they had shots taken at the war games holiday centre because that was inspirational. He was the first person who started texturing bases, you know, that oh, kind yeah. of thing. His, he took painting stands, and we've subsequently discovered he didn't actually paint all his figures, not surprising because there were thousands upon thousands of them, but he and his painting team really took the stand of, standard of miniatures painting up a notch. But the the style of the figures was still kind of old school because they were Hinchliffe miniatures, right? There's a company mm -hmm. called Hinchliffe, which then he set up his own brand called Connoisseur Miniatures. Uh, and they had a particular very active style. The cavalry are fantastic. Uh, I mean, there's actually some, some odd-looking beasts when you look at them hard, but actually it was the, the <laughs> sense of animation. So a game, a Peter Gilder game laid out on a table really did look like a period painting by say Edward Detai you know painting of Waterloo or whatever 
Um, and and this is the thing, the visual impact. Whereas back in the old school, when I look at, you know, here I am grabbing a copy of Charles Grant's The War Game, where there you've got rank upon rank of, of stately Spencer Smith miniatures in an 18th century game marching across the tabletop in his you know re reconstructed battle of Mulvit. but you know look looking at the terrain i mean actually his houses are gorgeous and the woods are you know the woods are model trees what you're going to do but the terrain you've got cut out bits of chipboard uh, painted mm -hmm. green as the hills contour right. hills right um and so in a sense i think a lot of people associate old school historical wargaming with 18th century games just because of Charles Grant and the war game and because of Charge and, and Brigadier Peter Young which had a very similar kind of look you know stately 18th century armies big units this is the other thing so you've got units of what 48 figures plus officers for yeah. infantry big units yeah. all the miniatures in the same pose because oh yeah you know, they they you know sculptors did well I'll I'll do a marching grenadier no one's going to need anything more than that are they right why do you need more and then this was one of the interesting things it was actually after that in the kind of 1970 oh can't I have something in an advancing pose that's a bit more active particularly for Napoleonic games so there's this transition isn't there from old school gaming for a lot of people perhaps even most people being associated with 18th century battles you know the seven years war the war of the austrian succession malberian wars whereas it, the move to middle school driven by people like bruce quarry and peter gilder who were much more kind of napoleonic gamers so suddenly the images you saw in the magazines you know they were no longer often black and white images of course of 18th mm -hmm. century games you start to get full color magazines and you get the panoply of color of napoleonic gaming with figures in oh, different yeah. poses they're they're more active so your french line infantry oh yes because they're sort of they're vol you know they're, they're citizen levy and they're a bit more you know rough and ready and active different poses they're now advancing they're not just stately marching they're advancing and or charging and that kind of stuff and you get this explosion of manufacturers as well of course you get miniature figurines you get hinchliff and others suddenly the the wealth of choice offered to the war gamer makes shows this transition from what i would call old school through to middle school and more complicated rules move towards kind of more simulation bruce quarry's airfix guide to wargaming and I, i'll reach up and pluck it pluck it <laughs> off my shelf my top shelf here is uh, napoleonic wargaming by bruce quarry for airfix 1974 that's the date of that and suddenly oh my god oh, what are all these rules oh my god look he's got different stats for every nationality so you've got the the french stats you've got the prussian stats you've got what's got so you're telling me suddenly oh my god uh, french old guard infantry can march 40 millimeters more per move than french dragoons on foot Okay. In column, oh my god, so young guard uh, move 160 millimetres per, per, per turn, whereas chasseurs only move 140 millimetres per turn. 
and this was mind-boggling right right and so suddenly for every army you've got all these different stats for all these different troop types all the oh my god i didn't know there were so many many formations let alone that it would take me three quarters of a move to change from this to that <laughs> this was this was extraordinary to us so i think uh, the old school movement that came about in the you know the early 2000s Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you like was a reaction or uh, many of its members saw it as an antidote to the uh, seeming ever increasing complexity of rules yeah that that I just want to know that infantry march six inches in line seven and a half inches in column they charge nine inches and when we get to the combat we just roll some dice kind of thing it's, it's sort of a, re- a return to this imagined era of simplicity. But what people forget is that at the same time as people might have been playing Charles Grant 18th century games, they were also playing WRG 3rd, 4th, 5th edition Ancients games where, uh-huh. man, there was a huge complexity, right? Anyone who's right. actually gone back and read what... Yeah, anyone who plays Black Powder now, for example, or Hail Caesar, big fun. Anyone who plays Hail Caesar as their as their ancient wargaming rules of choice now should go back and read if they can manage it, let alone play a a, a game of let's say WRG fifth edition rules that came out in what would have been early nineteen eighties. Man, it's mind boggling. Uh, the the complexity of those rules, the statistics, um, and what people came to to know and sometimes love as Barkeries, Phil Barker, um, mm-hmm. who had this way of taking something really simple and making it sound really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is why I'm saying the old school. Uh, it has a kind of nostalgia value, Jay, but at the same time, it yeah, this is what nostalgia does. It gives you rose-tinted glasses. You kind of focus on, oh yeah, I used to love that. Oh yeah, God. Oh, a heavy cavalry charge using Charles Grant's rules from the war gaming. What a glorious thing, you know. Your your regiment of twenty-four cuirassiers smashes its way through an opposing infantry unit, crashes into the next unit behind that, smashes its way through that. Wonderful stuff, you know. This is this is why I, I grew up loving cavalry, you know. Um, right. Whereas at the same time, I can remember my friend Guy and I, because we were playing back then at, you know, university just after Ancients Games, where we would I either be sitting there for ages scratching our heads about what does that rule mean or we'd be having huge rails about no that rule that you're reading it wrong this rule means this Uh, that now one of the great advantages nowadays of course is you can go online you can go on a forum and say to people look we're trying to play this set of rules have any of you had this problem what what did you take this rule to mean and you get an answer probably within minutes whereas back then of course what would you do you'd have to write literally you'd have to write a letter to the people yeah. who wrote the rules or write into the wag- one of the magazines and wait until 
next month or whenever it was that the editor saw fit to publish your letter and then uh if you wrote the author and no no names no names but one particular author i can think of the reply would simply be along the lines of well it's in the rules yeah yeah no names no names no pack drill but yes read rtfm as the jargon yeah. goes well there's 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 certainly i mean there, we certainly have advantages today that that the gamers of that of that age did not enjoy yep obviously uh the the speed of reply and uh you can argue about the aesthetics of have increased certainly mm. um but what is it? I guess what is it that we? What is it that we can learn? Well, I guess we we we've already discussed what you can learn from those types of games, just in the uh, in the simplicity of running them. And mm. I, I've as we've discussed before, you know, there's a there's a certain advantage to the oh not I don't need to say realism. There's a certain advantage to making sure that your outcome is plausible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the complexity or simplicity of the rules themselves aren't necessarily indicative of that. Correct. And I wonder and I wonder if what we can learn from that approach, that old school approach is simply along the lines of make sure that the that the result is plausible. Yep. And reproducible. Yes. And the the aesthetics of the game are are sufficient that the player is immersed in the game. Yeah. And in the era. And and it doesn't have to be, you know, crystal brush or golden demon winning painting. It just needs to be, you know, good enough that you can identify, you know, who's the French, who's the British. Yep. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot in what you're saying there, Jay. I mean, for example, um, one of the things that uh, regularly happened was that uh, Charles Grant... I'll stick with Charles Grant for the minute because a lot of people see him... Him and Don Featherstone probably as kind of the... um, if you like the the grand masters of old school um they were obviously two of the most powerful figures in wargaming at the time that most of us you know um would most old school gamers would want to have a copy of charles grant's the war game uh, peter young's charge as well um and don featherstone's books on the shelves right those are the kind of the three leading lights i suppose and Charles Grant in particular, because he wrote regularly for Battle for Wargamers, for example, and he often would, uh, with his son, Charles Stuart Grant, C.S. Grant, would refight, you know, famous battles from the 18th century. And um, he often found that, he, despite the fact that his rules were relatively... No, not relatively. I'm going to use the word deceptively simple. Um, Okay. That they would refight battles from history. And also they would go through this process known as bathtubbing. Where, for example, Mm -hmm. okay, you want to refight Waterloo, let's say. 
But right. if you stuck to strictly to the ground scale that you're using, and he was using one inch equals ten yards in his rules. If you strictly stuck to that, you would need a vast table and many, many thousands of figures. And he'd say, no, no, no. What we're going to do is we're going to compress this battle down into its bare essentials uh, so that uh, instead of needing uh, 150 battalions, we're going to do it with 15. <laughs> right? Right. And what was always surprising was how su how successful he was at that. Mm -hmm. Um and that actually they would pl they play through the game and often it would be a four or even a six player affair and there'd be the, the write-up i mean one of the things that i associate with old school is charles grant was brilliant at writing up after action reports of war games they were really incredibly entertaining but also intelligent and insightful. And that's something, bluntly, which you don't often see nowadays in magazines. Now, I'll, I'll take a very small digression to, to say that this is one of the problems I had when I was running battle games and then miniature war games with battle games is, uh -huh. first of all, <clears throat> not many people actually sent me after-action reports. And those people that did... I'm sad to say I didn't print them because nine times out of ten they weren't very good. They were really rather mm -hmm. dry and dull. The kind of the kind of thing you'd read and think, yeah, well, you had to be there, didn't you? Right. <laughs> Whereas Charles Grant, as a, a prime example, was absolutely brilliant at writing up an entertaining, informative, insightful, uh, you know, battle report. Now, and so, as I say, it was deceptively simple that his, his rules, however, were based on an awful lot of research. I think this is one of the things, again, we've mentioned that people like, you know, I, let me use my own shot, steel and stone rules as an example, mm -hmm. which some people have looked at and said, oh, they're quite old school. Well, in a sense, that would be a compliment because I, man, I did a huge amount of work you know researching the horse and musket period and right. and yes as we you, we said about something else what people don't see is the editing okay what people don't see is the fact that i started out with a mountain of material thinking oh my god how am i going to make a playable game out of this so what you do is you strip back and you strip back and you strip back till you get to the bare minimum where you think yeah that produces a workable game but which gives plausible outcomes and we, we're using that word plausible we i think you and i we had that discussion where we decided let's reject the word realistic because right. unless actually someone's aiming a bloody musket at you <laughs> a loaded musket at you it's not realistic guys but it gives plausible outcomes that seem most of the time to be in accord with what the actual historical outcome of such a situation would have been right mm -hmm. and I think this is the thing. This is what you mustn't underestimate about old school is that these people weren't daft. You know, these were professional people. They were retired army officers or, right. you know, professional people in other aspects who 
actually were fending off any notion that this was just silly playing with toy soldiers. These people right. were extremely keen to get across. These were the, the, you know, they were trailblazing this notion that no, we're not grown men just playing with toy soldiers. This is actually meaningful. This this gives us an insight into the history of what actually happened in warfare during the period right mm-hmm. in particular you know you tried t- telling phil barker that what he was doing with playing with toy soldiers you know and the guys in the war games research group just look at you know the the things that they try to incorporate the arguments they had in the magazines about the very fact that actually you might think that rule about the romphia is wrong but we've read the latest latest archaeological research we've been to this museum we've seen this thing we've done testing at home about how it would fare against a greek hoplite with a spear and shield and so on and so forth they were taking it really really seriously so you shouldn't mm-hmm. dismiss this so right uh, i i think yeah that kind of plausibility thing is one of the upsides of old school gaming where and I noticed on the show notes we've got a note here. What do we think might be the negative aspects of old school wargaming? Mm-hmm. Well, hmm. is it the negative aspects of old school wargaming or old school wargamers? <laughs> right? Um, because the thing is, this is why I tell people up straight. Whilst I have an affection for a sense of nostalgia about those that era those kind of games some of the miniatures um is that the kind of gaming i do all the time no it is not because actually i i like and admire the efforts being made by probably most current rules writers to plough their own furrow to investigate and try new and innovative mechanisms Um, and also because one of the things I think that has to be said about a lot of old school games is they are generally speaking quite time consuming Mm -hmm. Uh, and we need to recognize that nowadays you know sadly most of us just don't have the same amount of time on our hands that we used to to spend all day playing a game i mean bless his heart a simple example charles grant back in the day when you look at a copy of the war game all those hundreds thousands of spencer smith miniatures which i love for my own reasons call me mad but i love them they were individually based which is to say they weren't based they were just they were individual miniatures so you wanted to move your infantry battalion in column seven and a half inches forward that required 48 individual arm movements for each and every musketeer (laughs) plus what would it be about five officers and non-commissioned officers so that's 53 movements per battalion right so one of the first things that became apparent in the move from 
really old school to what we might call yeah. middle school uh, was the basing of units. So now I remember, um, in fact, Bruce Quarry's rules, the the, the Napole- Napoleonic wargaming rules and stuff. He had this interesting system where you you still needed to remove individual figures as casualties. So what you do is you base your troops up in kind of multiples so you'd have a few individuals so they right. could be taken off as one figure you'd have some pairs you'd have some threes and then fours i think you, there was never more than about four figures per base so yeah you you'd have this kind of slightly disjointed unit moving around um and it was really peter gilder was the first time when i saw his figures with cavalry mounted in threes or sometimes fours, infantry in sixes, sometimes eights. Mm-hmm. And my first question I remember back in the day was, but how do you take the casualties off? I, you can't express to people how much of a kind of mental block that was. Seeing Peter Gilder's war games for the first time and thinking, yeah, but but how do you take the casualties off then? Say I, I shoot at your battalion of infantry and inflict one casualty, what do I do? It was only when I got to the War Games Holiday Centre I, I discovered, yeah, what you do is you put this ugly curtain ring over the neck of the yep. miniature. Now, casualty caps. Yeah. Casualty caps. <laughs> and I have to tell you, that is still something I absolutely hate. It's one of the things, because for me, you've got they're awful, aren't they? They've got all this trouble to make these, paint these beautiful miniatures and do beautiful basing, and then you stick a thing over the top of the bloody mini. I'm sorry, but that is just that's an obscenity, right? (laughs) That is a crime against aesthetics. It's just yeah, they're they're truly they're truly awful, and oh, I. There's so many other better ways you could do that. And... Yeah, I mean, people have been much more innovative recently about, you know, put a little thing, even if it's a tiny little green dice or something that follows the unit around, you know, or <clears throat> a casualty figure with a casualty marker with a discreet little number on the side. Mm-hmm. There's so many ways you can do it. And I seem to th- Now, I'm trying to think who it is. It might be Dave Brown, he of General de Brigade and uh, General d'Armée now, of course who I think <clears throat> oh, a few years ago now he was one of the first people I saw had actually got um, mounted uh, created different look casualty figures to represent different different levels of casualty and I thought now that's classy that's nice yeah so um, so that's kind of one of the things that old school gaming they're terribly time consuming for all sorts mm-hmm. of reasons, not least, you know, and also you had simultaneous moves. I, I, people forget this, but back in the day, you would have before each turn, both sides would sit there r- doing written orders. Now, yeah. there might be simple written orders, such as so you'd have a sort of a table, you draw a table with the name of the unit down the side and the move number along the top. So there's a load of boxes, and in the box, you'd put like an arrow and a note advance six inches or whatever or 
sometimes if you wanted to do a major change you'd have to write quite a long note oh yes well i want this brigade to go to that objective and when they reach this objective they to do this this and this and they can't change that order until a courier figure gets there to give them an alternative mm -hmm. so you yeah have... I, I actually i actually experimented with something along those lines with with some world war ii get, uh rules i was thinking about doing yep. where you would send uh, your company commander would send a runner mm -hmm. off to the platoons to to issue orders yep. and the uh, the exception to that would be Americans because we had you know we had radios at the platoon level yep no so, yeah absolutely I mean and I th and we talked about writing rules uh, last time you were on of mm. writing we talked about writing orders last time you were on, if I recall. Yeah. And that's a great mechanic, and I keep wanting to get back to that somehow. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm just kind of being more of a skirmishy guy at the moment. But, yeah, that's that. I think that bears that bears repeating. I think that bears yeah. some further further study. Because the, cause the thing is, Jay, what, what writing orders... Are, I mean, okay, if you want to look at... If people are looking at the negative side, you can say, oh, God, but hang on, that means everything stops for 10 minutes in between moves. So you both, both make your moves, you do your calculations, you take off your casualties, and then you sit down, and you kind of have a, have a rest for 10 minutes while you write the orders for the next move. Now, to a certain extent, you could say, yeah, okay, I see what you mean, but actually, since you've both done your moves simultaneously, it's not actually adding any more time because what often happens in I go you go games is the person whose turn it is now spends quite a lot of time thinking about what it is they're going to do so they right. take the same amount of time as if they were writing orders the other mm -hmm. thing that written orders do man it introduces surprise yeah because one of the things about I go you go that <sighs> cheeses me off more often than not is you're always just reacting to what the other players doing right. or trying to second you know it, it's I, I like the idea that you can write orders and then if you, you obviously then you go right you finish writing orders right let's go and so you put your orders down on the table and you move your troops in accordance with those orders and it's only if two units might accidentally bypass one another that you say all oh, right okay we need to take that back by quarter moves to work out where they would have actually hit or whatever right or reacted to one another but amongst civilized players that's really really easy to do that's so easy to do uh, or with but, a game master. Oh, with a game, obviously with a, with a with an umpire, yeah, game master. Um, but it's also what I liked about it is it means you can spring a surprise. So you might think to yourself, right, what I actually want to do is send my cavalry to smash their way through the enemy center. So what I'm going to do, I've just got a battery of artillery in the middle of my line, let's say, and it's just going to bang away, looks like it's a bit brainless, and it's just going to bang away casually looking at, you know, the centre of the enemy line, just weakening it a bit. Whereas right. my cavalry, I'm going to write a series of orders that send it out looking as if it's going off to my left flank in an attempt to outflank the enemy. 
and lo and behold you see as as the moves progress your enemy reacts to that and starts sending their oh oh look he's going to go over and threaten my right flank so i better get my cavalry reserves over there as well and then at a certain point you suddenly switch your order and say no right charge towards the center and you've caught him you know glue-footed because he's mm -hmm. expected you still to carry on towards the flank so he's written his orders to carry on towards the flank and now he can't react you've actually yeah. stolen a march on him now in an i go you go game that is almost impossible and yet right. when you look at real historical battles that kind of thing happened all the time right look at Malton Marlborough yeah, Blenheim, and ruses for and counter marches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at Frederick the Great. At, well, almost every battle he was involved in. You know, the, what, how did the great commanders manage to pull off their incredible victories? Is because they caught their enemy led-footed, and they suddenly changed direction or emphasis that you know they they moved the schwerpunkt that's a word you'd like isn't it jay oh yeah yeah they moved the, you know they so they they gave the impression of their schwerpunkt being somewhere else and then suddenly moved you know caught the the enemy completely on the hop now that's a, one of the great joys of one aspect of old school wargaming now there are other ways of course you can achieve that you could produce uh you, you could even you just use file, you know index file cards or something you could create a bit like commands and colors yeah mm -hmm. you could create a series of cards that represent the order so instead of you actually having to sit there and write the order you could just choose a card out of a, a right. hand of cards you've got right so left flank left flank aha right flank yeah um, it's it's rather as if I mentioned commands and colours there. That there's an interesting option. You could experiment with commands and colours, where instead of you randomly drawing a card each turn, mm -hmm. the the deck of cards is dealt out to the two sides. So you in your oh, hand, yeah. right? In your hand, you could say, "Ah, oh, okay, I've got a load of oh yeah." skirmish left flank advanced left flank advanced left flank which make him react constantly to that but then next move aha i'm gonna choose right flank okay and you know pull a fast it's it's you know this is just i'm thinking on my feet here but this is certainly something worth experimenting with isn't it sure you know and there was a game oh my god and i forgot what the game was there was a fantasy game that I tried with Guy, French company, not, was it Malifaux? I can't remember. I don't think it was Malifaux, but it might have been from the same people. There was a fancy game of, that came out, of, oh, it's a few years ago now. In fact, it's probably 10 years ago now. Um, mm -hmm. That you they had counters or something. So you, you had a hand, of, uh, a bag of counters on your side, <clears throat> which is exactly that. They were standard orders, but instead of you actually having to write them down, you just laid down the counter to say, all right, I'm doing this this turn. Yeah. So well, Demon you... Demon World was was like that. Oh, okay. It had, yeah, Demon World from uh, Hobby <laughs> Products in Germany. Right. Um, I think, who has that now? I forget who has Demon World now, but someone else has it. 15mm yeah. Fantasy, hex-based grid uh -huh. on a hex grid. Yeah. Um, 
units were multiple bases, hex bases, and the the figures were gorgeous. Right. Um, okay. But but I digress. Also, um, another another game that was more of a skirmishy game, uh, Trinity Battleground from oh, okay. White Wolf, the the you know the vampire and werewolf oh, yeah. people. They had a science fiction game called Trinity Battleground, and it had little order counters like that also. There you and go. you know, of course, you know, as we've said before, you know, X Wing. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. X Wing and an Armada both have uh, order. Yeah, tokens yeah, and, or and and well, and Wings of Glory, where you yeah. you have a hand of cards for you know your maneuvers and stuff. Or I presume it's the same in Sails of Glory, is it? Do you know, this, here's a terrible thing. I bought Sails of Glory, the kind of the the Age of Sail game mm-hmm. <clears throat> pretty miniatures bought that months ago and I haven't even taken it out of the box yet I feel terrible about that <clears throat> <laughs> I'll give it to myself as my own Christmas present but anyway yes. Yeah, so this go. this notion that if people see having to write orders as a kind of detraction from the game then there are mechanisms you can create simple car driven stuff to overcome that because yeah. you know coming back to um other things about old school gaming that I, I imagine I, I, I'm going to put myself in the head of say Rich Clark Two Fat Lardies, hi Rich if you're listening or Nick, hi Nick um, that what old school games didn't have enough of was friction and right. one of the things that <laughs> you know Two Fat Lardies has been incredibly innovative at doing is creating rule sets that introduce friction um, into the games. Now, and then that's a perfectly valid point, and some people really like... Um, what's the word I would use? If I wanted to be really classy, I'd use a word like ludological. I, I appreciate the ludological, <laughs> uh, the gameplay, if you like, aspects of having a game where the rules themselves introduce mechanisms whether it's special kinds of dice such as the dice in chain of command for example this chain of commands an obvious one uh the dice in chain of command or the cards in um sharp practice or whatever where you can suddenly draw the tea break card can't you and that kind of thing and though they're really clever and i can see that uh, what they're doing is saying, right, well, the fact is, at the level of command you're operating, there would be an awful lot that's beyond your control. And that, therefore, we... You shouldn't just be able to do whatever you want every single turn, uh, and we are going to impose ludological devices upon you that prevent that from happening. And that's fair enough. And some people love the kind of feel that that gives to the game uh, and you know I've played Chain of Command quite a few times myself now and yeah I you know it it, it has its certainly has its merits but on the counter side what are uh, many of the early old school war gamers was that you know let's say Charles Grant let's stick with his you know his World War 2 rules battle practical war gaming that he published back in the early 1970s there were no such devices opposed on on players but all their you know Charles Grant and the others they did have morale rules mm-hmm. that's the first thing the, the <clears throat> morale rules I mean certainly when you look at um, 
oh my god, WRG, Ancients Rules, or Bruce Quarry's Napoleonic Rules, even Charles Grant's Rules, morale played a huge part. Now, Charles Grant's morale rules were much simpler. They were based on, you know, well, how many casualties has the unit taken if it's up to 25%? Because we're also talking about 18th century armies that were much more disciplined. This is the other thing. much more. So up to a certain point, they would almost ignore the casualties. But officer casualties were really important. And remember, you had right. separate officer figures around the unit. So if you lost an officer figure, if he was you know shot or killed in a melee or something this had a big impact on the unit had a negative impact if the colonel was killed even more of an impact okay but he saw it largely as okay when a unit reaches you know 50 percent casualties it will retire from the battlefield it was as simple as that hits 50 percent casualties going back now right a lot of us would say, man, that's really brutal. 50% casualties. Actually, it almost never got to that point. But other, you know, in later periods, and certainly the WRG wanted to be more sophisticated, more nuanced. About, okay, well, they've taken, they've only taken 5% casualties. Oh, but they're in the open, exposed. There's enemy units nearby. Oh, they haven't got any friends. Their friends have run away, just go, gone past them. They're, oh, that's going to unsettle them. And so on and so forth. And try to get much more nuanced about the psychology of what it was like to be on a battlefield at that time right um uh, but as i say there's there's other things i mean i think have you played kings of war for example you know i've I've looked at them closely i just haven't gotten them on the table uh i'm it's a good game i'm I'm getting i i've heard a lot of good things about it and i'd like to get into it um i I tell you what it's one of those that's it's one of those things that especially with the rules being free yeah, uh, yeah, to yeah. download. Um, yeah. I want to give it a try, but you know, I've. <laughs> now, funnily enough, I was <laughs> just. You got to put it on the pile of things. Oh, I know. You know the I what know. to do, you know. I I, the, I had my first. Now I was at. A, oh my god, I was at a war game show, and I think it was broadside in Sittingbourne, and I think it might have been 2013 when my book came out, and I and I launched my book at that show with Phil Sidnell of Pen and Cent, Pen and Sword. But at that show, there was Mantic Games, and there was a guy there from Mantic Games, and he had a tiny little table. I think it was only three feet square. And he was just demoing Kings of War. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I was wandering around. It was fairly quiet. And, all right, I'll give it a go. Go on. I said, how long will it take? And he said, oh, 10 minutes. I said, yeah, I can give you 10 minutes. Well, I ended up spending probably half an hour there because I was just fascinated because it has a rule mechanism that can binds the combat and morale aspects so basically you don't do any kind of individual figure removal that's the first thing so that saves time secondly there's this fascinating mechanism where the outcome of the of a combat determines what happens to the losing unit you don't have to do any kind of separate morale or leadership calculation that really got me thinking because what it means is you can fight really quite big battles really quickly mm-hmm. and the thing also now they've they've produced a historical version of the rule set as well yes so which will be suitable for you know ancient slash medievals and i've got it over there somewhere but i don't know where it is at the moment but it, now that again i can see 
that's that that's the kind of rule mechanism I can appreciate because it doesn't um, it doesn't affect the outcome. You don't you don't come away feeling like it was any less of a game because you haven't go, had to go through shitloads of pluses and minuses. Yeah, yeah. you know, on a morale table. Because this is also the the game's designed by Alessio Cavatore, um, mm-hmm. who he's a clever guy. You know, hats off to Alessio. He's really good at abst. You know, looking at the abstract aspects of wargaming. Because of course he's he produced that um, fascinating sort of derivation of chess as well, didn't he? Called Shuro, um, mm-hmm. which came out oh, a few years ago now. Um, he's really clever at distilling outcomes to you know what's the bare minimum that will make this uh you know a plausible outcome very clever um so in terms of am i an old school gamer well the thing is up to a point but i really appreciate that kind of thinking that say two fat right. lardies are doing that alessio cavatore is doing and another you know uh let's think of gripping beast saga uh, and mm-hmm. others you know we could be here all day couldn't we come thinking of yeah. people who are creating innovative rule sets rules mechanisms uh that and this is also why i think you know why we as wargamers keep being tinkerers because i can look at okay i i wrote my own shot steel and stone rules but i'm also thinking okay people seem to like them they work and they seem they don't break you know we've played some huge uh games with them and they haven't broken in the course of you know entire weekend gaming with right. a dozen stroppy <laughs> gamers right um but i'm always thinking what can i learn from other rule sets that i could potentially introduce into my rules or my games to improve them right. and and i think this is the thing it's it's to just be labeled as an old school gamer you know you know, I appreciate the nostalgia aspect. God knows, I think I've got about four thousand Spencer Smith miniatures because I just happen to love Spencer <laughs> Smith miniatures. But that's not—that's not who I am. Do you see what I mean? I was someone who was there, yes, in the early nineteen seventies and doing most of my formative gaming from well, nineteen seventy-one up to let's say nineteen eighty-four thereabouts. But I'm also I'm me now where the world is different. We have so so many options at our fingertips, so many different right. scales, you know, God. Um so many different there isn't a sing is there a single war games period that we couldn't fight now? I, I doubt it. Uh yeah, because yeah, there's yeah, because anything that's not you know, you're not gonna see War of Jenkins ear figures, but by gun they're close enough to yeah. something else yeah. <clears throat> and in whatever material you want i mean back in the day i mean spencer smith bless their heart and i've got hundreds of them the original plastic spencer smiths they were terrible castings you know really <laughs> and they're brittle and god knows i think he must have used chewing gum in the mixture somewhere uh you know <laughs> bizarre things so the, the quality of production of miniatures we have now is amazing the quality and range of scenery oh, oh yeah. my 
God, I mean, that alone. Uh, and therefore, you know, I, I suppose in my mind's eye, I associate true old school gaming with a particular look, a very simple, you know, green tabletop uh, and... Uh, you know, contour hills and some a few model railway trees and back in the day it probably would have been trying houses or you'd have made your right. own houses out of balsa wood, right? You know. Mm -hmm. Whereas now you can have an entire city in MDF or resin at any scale. You know, uh, funny right, enough, right. Um, there was uh, I was online uh, buying some six millimeter bits and pieces. Uh, just yesterday, you know, uh, you know, barrels and boxes and uh, little bunkers and goodness knows what in six mil scale, uh, which is extraordinary. Right. Um, whereas not so long ago, yes, you could get the six mil figures. Well, good luck making the scenery, mate, because no right, one right. does it. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so. I think I wouldn't, you, you know, you're asking, are there negative aspects of old school gaming? The, the only truly negative aspect of an old school gaming I, I could say is if you become too much of a dyed in the wool, blinkered old school gamer, if you refuse, you know, if you say everything after 1965, let's say everything after 1965 is rubbish, all this modern stuff is rubbish. Right. You know, because not only would that just be a, a stupid lie, but God, you you're missing out on so much. You know, yeah. I can ad I can admire someone who who just likes collecting you know, the miniatures, the model soldiers, the tradition, the stat and the Holger. I can admire someone who likes collecting figures from that period as one aspect of their hobby. I mean, that would include me. I, I collect i can't deny i've got a vast collection of spencer smith miniatures <laughs> but i've also just ordered some resin black scorpion 32 mil cowboys and mexicans yeah right i've got as we know though we're not going to talk about it now thank you quite a lot of 10 millimeter pendragon miniatures waiting to be mm. painted and quite a lot of back of <laughs> six mil figures waiting to be painted and yeah less uh, said about that the better <laughs> less said about that the better and 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 the the list goes on of stuff i have bought and enjoyed uh, uh, you know let's come back to chain of command for that i have in two scales ghq 1285th and uh you know early war miniatures and plastic soldier company kits for chain of command and they're they're wonderful i i'm not gonna say in that respect that you know i and the terrain now Okay, if I if I want to put on an old school demonstration of a Charles Grant game that he played back in the day, yeah, okay, I'll use old chipboard contour hills and my green tabletop and what have you right. to show to people, almost like as a museum piece, you know, that yes, this is what it used to be like, boys. But alongside that, God, look at the beautiful scenery. Even simple things that have made a difference. Teddy bear fur, right? Yeah. Uh, so that wheat fields look like wheat fields. Um, there's, there's so much. So old school gaming 
Jay, you know, summing up. Yes, it has its merits. And I think what, if you like, new school gamers, modern gamers ought to do from time to time is to acknowledge their roots. Because this was our roots, right? Just as we acknowledge that, you know, once upon a time it was von Reisfitz and Kriegspiel, yeah? Uh, mm-hmm. But our roots are with these people, the Charles Grants, Don Featherstones, Terry Wises, Joe Morshausers, and others, who blazed the trail for us, that created the hobby, essentially. Uh, and they did it to the best of the, their ability with the means they had at their disposal at, their ta- at that time. And there's right. many aspects of those things that you know give us a rose tinted warm glow and we, oh that was lovely i remember when after school me mm-hmm. and timmy would meet and we'd do this and they would have and of course the airfix battle of waterloo la Haye saint farmhouse you know that appeared in everything um sure. but we've moved on i've moved on um that i like everyone i like variety and so whilst old school gaming is if you like, it's on the me- it's still on the menu for me. For some people, it's not on the menu at all, but it is still on the menu for me for from time to time, and it's it's a lovely thing. But I'm also, uh, you know, I've got huge admiration for the people who are looking for new ways to keep the you know keep the the pulse going in the hobby to right. new ways to make it seem exciting and innovative um new ways to try and reproduce on the tabletop what actually happened historically or just exciting fun gaming mechanisms for fantasy for sci-fi a lot of you know we talked about this before lots of crossover with board games and the like this is exciting it's fun it's absolutely pretty, you know so absolutely um yeah there's there's pluses and minuses old school gaming is what it is it's never going to change but there's there's also so much more available to us now jay yeah i i certainly i I can certainly appreciate that approach uh and i i think that there's certainly more to be said about it um i i'd like to maybe do some of that my some of my I'd certainly like to take kind of an old school approach in some of the things I do, mm. uh, and I think that it bears further further discussion. I, I've I've talked to a friend of mine down in St. Louis about getting shot, steel, and stone on the table, uh, probably just with my, you know, probably just with my unit tiles I made. Yep, yeah, cool. But uh, but yeah, we'll have to we'll have to talk about that more in the future. But this is about as good a time as any to to take a break. And yep. uh, we'll come back here in a few minutes with part two of our of our interview. <laughs> <laughs> I kid, I kid, folks. Uh, I Can appreciate you your expression on people's faces. There, I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I certainly appreciate you coming on today, Henry. Folks out there listening, I appreciate you you listening for as long as you have, Henry. It's always it's always 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 a pleasure to have you on the show and it. And I, I do enjoy enjoy our chats. Thank you, Jay. I mean, it's, I I I no, I I ought to make a promise that in some future point when we get a ch- chat together, I will breathe at some point before twenty minutes. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm I'm sure I've got listeners out there who are thinking, hey, 
at least they didn't talk about cookies for 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's been a real pleasure, Jay, uh, as always. Uh, love coming on your show, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about this stuff. You know, it's stuff that I love, and and as I say, I'm I'm really lucky. I've, I think people who've, on Twitter have seen I've posted... A uh, couple of photos of my collection of old school books that I still. Oh, yes. I think I've got almost all the old school works now. I I still occasionally though. This is the amazing thing. I still occasionally stumble across something. I think, oh my god, there was some bloke who had a book published in 1973 that sold ten mm-hmm. copies, and I'd never heard of it before. You know, it does still yeah. once a blue moon happen. Um, but it and it does give me joy. You know, and I I am fascinated with the history of the hobby and stuff. But, um, you know, I, I think it's great that shows like yours help promote the diversity of yes. what is a wonderful hobby, whatever your particular take on it is. Yep. Yeah. I, I take that as part of my personal remit uh, for this show is to, to showcase some aspects or companies that might not get um, a wider audience otherwise. Absolutely. So. Thank you for being a part of that, Henry. Uh, look forward to talking again. Folks, as always, if the wargaming you're having isn't any fun, you make it fun. That is all. The Veteran Wargamer is copyright J. Arnold 2017. Be sure to leave a review on iTunes. Discussion on the blog at theveteranwargamer.blogspot.com. Music courtesy of bensound.com.